All right, it is Coffee Talk time, and my Coffee Talk guest today is Sabrina Nanji. She is founder and journalist at the Queen's Park Observer, a seven-year veteran of the Queen's Park Press Gallery, and the first woman of color to sit on its executive. She's covered Ontario politics for the Toronto Star, TVO, and Reuters. Welcome, Sabrina. Hi, Maggie. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, so before we pour into all the news around the province. We like to take some time during our coffee talk chat to get to know our guests a little bit more. So you're born and raised in Toronto and the GTA uh, went to Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, Why did you come back to Toronto? Um, I mean, I guess I was just drawn to Queens Park. Um, I love it there. It's, uh, it's a bit of a small world. It feels like its own little community. And uh, I started working there, as you mentioned, uh, in 2016. And I just fell in love with it. And I guess like, you know, over time, you kind of develop sources, uh, you know, you get this kind of institutional knowledge. And so I've been lucky enough to create my own newsletter, kind of letting people know what's happening around Queen's Park, not only the news, but also the fun stuff, like gossip, uh, and and people seem to be liking it so far. So I guess that's why, that's why Toronto's home. Take me back, like, why did you end up in journalism? Was that always your desire uh, to, to end up being a journalist? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think uh, a lot of my fellow reporters can relate out there. You know, you kind of start being nosy, I guess. I'm I'm kind of a nosy person. I um I want to know how how things work, how they're, you know, explained. I uh love holding uh, you know, politicians' feet to the fire and so I think just kind of this natural um curiosity and being able to kind of you know make that into a a living I think you know either way I would probably still do this if I uh if I like no matter what like the 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 cost was but uh I think yeah that's just this thing that's ingrained to you it's more of a calling than just a day job you you talked about your love for provincial politics um did that start off right away when you were in J school and the idea that, no, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover provincial politics. Or did you dabble in other areas and then figure out, oh, no, this is my sweet spot? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different levels of government, of course, and they're all doing their own thing. But I think with Queen's Park and provincial politics in particular, like the stuff that is most important in our day-to-day lives, that's kind of handled at the provincial level. So things like healthcare, education, um, you know, going to the doctor's office, you know, especially now these days, stuff that, you know, is top of mind for people. This all happens at the provincial level. I think, you know, municipally at City Hall, they deal with uh, your day-to-day life, like garbage pickup, uh, the roads, that type of thing. Federally, um, I feel like I don't really have much connection to federal politicians, you know, just as a citizen, unless I'm getting my passport renewed. And so this was kind of a way that I thought, uh, you know, would actually help make a difference in the stuff that matters most to people is kind of shining a light on on what's going on at at Queens Park. And you have been at the forefront of a lot of, you know, the big news items coming out of uh, provincial politics. Talk to me about some of uh, the most memorable, notable uh, stories that you've been able to cover over the past couple of years. 
Yeah, I think it it kind of ranges um, from all levels, right? I think my favorite uh, stories that I've written have to do with looking at receipts during election time, because of course, when it comes to democracy, uh, elections are, are are so important, not only for, you know, shining a light at what's on what's going on behind the scenes, for instance, nomination contests, which a lot of people might call inside baseball, but because political parties are the gateway to our democracy, uh, you know, being part of a political party, it certainly gives you a leg up. If you want to be a politician, you get resources, um, party recognition, uh, everything that a party has to offer. But it's usually like a really intense blood battle for who gets to actually carry a party's banner in an election and be their candidate. And so I think shining a light on nominations has been something I'm really passionate about. And also um, looking at the receipts, I think probably my most popular stories have been when after an election, I, you know, get a coffee, uh, pack a lunch, a few granola bars and head down to Scarborough Elections Ontario headquarters and just sit through these binders and binders of receipts and any citizen can do it. Uh, Mm. But it really just shines a light on, you know, how these political parties are spending their money during campaigns. And a lot of that goes into influencing our, you know, democracy and our elections. So, you know, where are they advertising? Um, Who are their donors? That's the kind of thing I I love shining a light on. And, you know, Serena, I mean, that's your job and you get paid to do that. But, you know, there are, I think about the common Ontarian that's just exhausted, <laughs> right? And, and just feels so weary about uh, provincial politics, about just all of the uh, arguing, all of the stuff, and, and almost can feel a little hopeless and helpless. Why is it important to uh, just to to check those receipts, to pay attention to that, to hold our elected officials accountable? Because it can be weary and tiring because of all of the back and forth, all of the scandal that continues to flood our headlines. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, even myself as a journalist, I think that I, you know, report on some of this stuff and I feel really disillusioned with the state of our politics. And I can understand the need to just want to tune out. But I think there's a danger in that. I mean, we just had a general election in Ontario last spring where voter turnout was absolutely in the toilet. It was a record low. We just had a by-election in Hamilton Center where, you know, just a fraction of people who were eligible to vote could. And I I can understand that people are busy. Uh, They are, you know, dealing with cost of living issues. They're struggling when they're trying to, you know, get groceries or, or fill up the gas tank. But at the end of the day, the people who are in charge of all of this that impact our day-to-day lives, you know, we have to kind of uh, shed a light on this. And um, I guess with the newsletter, I'm lucky that I can kind of try and uh, make it fun and exciting to read. And uh, because I, I get it, you know, I understand that disillusionment. And it's kind of uh, a, a bit of a balance for reporters to explain it in a way that you know, people are going to to pay attention and you, you kind of have to explain, you know, why is this important? Why does this matter? This is why you should care. I mean, the Sunshine List is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, so we see this list of who's making the most money in our in our province. And what do you do? You shrug your shoulders and you see how much, you know, our premier is making, uh, uh, you know, chief corner and so forth. Why is it important that we also pay attention to things like the Sunshine List and, again, hold people accountable? I mean, what what can we do as Ontarians? Yeah, the Sunshine List is, is actually interesting. It legally has to come out uh, by the end of, of this month. 
And so uh, as is typical for some governments, we had a big Friday news dump uh, yeah. when people are not usually paying attention. You know, we had Joe Biden over uh, over on the Hill making his speech. And so this was kind of a, a way, you know, to slide under the radar. But this is the annual, you know, look at who in the public service, you know, taxpayer funded is getting paid over $100,000 a year. And it's the usual suspects right at the top of the list. Uh, the heads of Metrolinx, uh, Ontario Power Generation are making, you know, well over a million dollars on the taxpayer's dime. Um, and there and there's questions about that. And I do think this is a good transparency policy. But, uh, you know, times have changed since this, the sunshine, sunshine list was first, uh, you know, first came about this, this revealing and $100,000 being the threshold where if you make that or more, you will be, uh, you know, on this list and you'll be publicly disclosed. But there's a lot of police, there's a lot of teachers, nurses uh, who are on this list, which is big bigger than ever. And if we had kept up with inflation, the bar would be a lot higher than $100,000. So just, I guess I would just caution people to keep that in mind when they're looking at this, that, you know, this, this threshold of $100,000 was came about, you know, quite a long time ago. And obviously, with inflation, uh, there's questions about if that bar should be raised. But at the end of the day, these people are, are paid for on the public dime. And uh, it's there for, for us to look at it. Because it is a, a public accountability measure. Yeah, that's fair. So the budget was released on Thursday, the largest budget this province has seen uh, at $204.7 billion. The finance minister is predicting a $2.2 billion deficit down from $6.5 billion. For some, this is a bit of, did I get what I had on my wish list that was on my wish list? So who do you think walked away happy with this budget, Sabrina? Um, I would say companies, manufacturers, uh, there was a lot of, you know, tax breaks for, for them, new tax credits, uh, goodies, I guess you could say, typically uh, on that front. And I think that kind of gives you a bit of a hint into the Ford government's uh, agenda here. They in reading this budget, you would think the pandemic is clearly in the rearview mirror and they're kind of looking ahead, focusing on the economy, manufacturing, uh, revival, that that sort of thing, which uh, I guess I would say those are the winners. But in in terms of, you know, if if this was like a, a very marquee budget, not really like there weren't a lot of, of goodies for citizens, uh, I guess, with the exception of low income seniors who are getting a, a boost to benefits. Yeah. And, and so I think that was a bit of the criticism, well, not a bit, a lot of the criticism that the Ford government got is that, uh, you know, with inflation rates up, uh, price of everything, groceries, uh, housing on the rise, uh, what happens to the common Ontarian that is just struggling to get by? Yeah, I think what was significant to me was not so much what was in the budget, but what was missing from it. Mm -hmm. There's not really much to do uh, for uh, us regular folks who are struggling at grocery stores, at the gas pumps, uh, no tax breaks for us here. And and I think that was, you know, a particularly a soft spot or a vulnerable spot for the Ford government because we have the federal budget coming out in just a couple of days and we're expecting to have some cost of living support there from the feds. And uh, the the other thing that's kind of, you know, a bit politically risky for the Ford government is 
you know, not laying out the support for municipalities, who I think were the other big losers here. There's uh, no no clear sign on how the Ford government is going to make municipalities whole after scrapping certain development fees that they rely on for infrastructure for new housing. And don't forget, the Ford government has this really ambitious housing plan. Um, and and the, the, at the backdrop of all of this is that the, the books are, uh, you know, soon going to be balanced. And the, the Ford government is sitting on these big, hefty cash reserves, contingency funds, uh, for, you know, to the tune of $4 billion this year that they can use essentially for a rainy day. And so it's a bit of a hard sell, I think, for the public, because while everyone can understand, you know, the need to prepare for a potential recession, which the finance minister is not talking about, but certainly a lot of other, you know, financial watchers are concerned about that. And, and while we can understand, you know, the, the need for these contingency funds, just in case we're, we're hit with tough economic times, people are struggling now. And I think that now is kind of the time to, uh, you know, meet meet the moment as the NDP leader, Marit Stiles, ha- has criticized this budget as, as not doing, is, is meeting the current moment. Yeah, I mean, you just hit all of the high marks there. When we look at the $4 billion in the contingency fund, if we slow down and think about that, right? I think so many times, uh, like, I think us in the news, we're, we rush through all of this information and people are like, what happened? What? Because I'm just trying to get my kid to school and I'm just trying to get the groceries done. And so, you know, everybody is looking for what what are they going to get out of the budget? And you're right. When we look at the fact that there's $4 billion in the contingency fund for quote unquote emergencies, many of us will say we are living in an emergency right now. You know, we can't afford groceries. We can't afford to live in the city. We can't afford, you know, and, and the list can go on and on and on. What what did the government say? Did they did they address the reasoning behind this contingency fund of four billion dollars? Well, there is one theory floating around out there, and it did come up, uh, you know, in the, this technical briefing where officials kind of get to brief reporters on the the technical aspects. And so uh, we can't really use it for direct attribution, but it's just really to help us understand on, on background, as we say in the business, mm-hmm. uh, what's happening here. And one theory that's kind of been floating around there that officials addressed is whether these contingency funds could potentially be used uh uh, to help address legal costs or the potential fallout of a loss with Bill 124, which we all know was that bill that wa- that capped wages for public sector workers, including nurses, at 1% for three years, which is being fought at in the courts. So the Ford government is ha- has actually lost that that case, but they are appealing it. So, uh, you know, it's still, it's still a bit up in the air what could happen, but they have already lost the first round, say. And our budget watchdog, Peter Weltman, the financial accountability officer, has said that, you know, a legal loss over Bill 124 could basically punch an $8 billion hole in the budget over a couple years. And so this could potentially, it's not spelled out by any means. Of course, you know, they've been criticized contingency funds because they're they're not very transparent and they can be used for a, a wide range of, of matters, but this is potentially one way they could be used. And so I think, you know, the official line from the Ford government is that they are bracing for uh, tough economic times ahead. The finance minister was in Europe just, just at the time that he was consulting and drafting the budget, and he could kind of read the, read the tea leaves. You know, the UK, even the States, uh, they're kind of dealing with these, uh, you know, economic pressures. 
And so in one sense, if there is some sort of recession, you know, on the horizon for Ontario, the Ford government could come out of this looking very prescient and responsible. But at the end of the day, you're right, you know, we're all struggling with our day to day lives right now. And now is not the time to be stingy. Now is the time that if you are running, you know, even small deficits, the, the, the public will be very forgiving, because they're feeling the pinch. And they think that this money could be better spent now uh, on things like healthcare, education, cost of living, tax breaks. Uh, you know, the, the Ford government has kind of given a little bit of that, but I think that the, for the public and certainly as oppos opposition critics have been saying, it, they could have gone a, a lot farther. Yeah, absolutely. Another startling thing is the projection uh, that only uh, 79,000 homes will be built in uh, 2024, which isn't close to the 50, uh, 150,000 uh, a year needed to meet the government's goal. And this is all around, you know, conversation and the controversy around releasing parts of opening parts of the Greenbelt, as well as Bill 23. What are your thoughts on this? I, I mean, again, there's, there's been, and I know you've covered this as well. Uh, there has been so much talk about this plan of building all of these houses in Ontario, and yet we're seeing a shortfall. Yeah, I think the Ford government government has not done a great job of showing their their math here, you know, showing their work because while everyone can agree that, you know, housing is in a crisis right now and we need to take bold action, the Ford government's plan might sound like, you know, at least some aspects of it building 1.5 million homes, you know, over the over next decade it sounds great, but they haven't really shown that. And certainly this budget, like how they're going to do that. And this budget is kind of poking holes that, th th you know, saying that they're already off track, you know, that there's just going to be an average of 80,000 housing starts a year, which is woefully well below, you know, already way off target. And, and just a reminder, you know, housing starts are kind of the beginning of construction. Mm -hmm. And so they are, they are way off uh, at this point. And when we ask, you know, what's going on here, uh, the, you know, are you worried that this is going to, you know, completely derail your plans, these ambitious promises that you made? They say that the, the budget projections are only reliant on what the private sector is seeing, and it doesn't take into account their policy changes, which, <laughs> I mean... It, it's kind of the official document. It doesn't really fly. They haven't really done enough here to show how they're going to follow through on these ambitious plans. And I think especially be, because we're in Toronto, the mayoral election coming up is going to be a, a big, a, you know, Queens Park, as, as the premier likes to say, he wants to stay out of it. There's a lot of skin in the game here because yeah. municipalities do much of the heavy lifting Toronto is going to get a, an empowered strong mayor it's a crowded field and and Queen's Park is watching this mayoral race very closely because the the city is going to have to do a lot of the the heavy lifting to get this to see this plan through and there's really not much for cities here and so I think this is kind of uh you know shaping up to be a bit of a, a, a you know a fight with the province right now and so like i said there, there's really not ex much explanation into how they're actually going to follow through on this plan yeah such a delight chatting with you today sabrina thank you so much for your time today thanks so much for having me